0: I think your congregation is a pearl of great price. It's easy to take things for granted. Uh, I do it every day of my life, and most of us do. And it's easy to take uh, your congregation for granted. But let me tell you, sometimes it takes an outsider coming in to see the things that you've gotten used to not seeing. And uh, um, you're probably the only congregation of Gentiles, the only Baptist congregation certainly, in the country, perhaps in the world, that really deeply gets and, and not only understands but values and, and, and honors the connection between the Church of Jesus Christ and the Jewish people. And I am deeply moved. I cannot tell you how important that is. It's not just important pragmatically, it's important because it's a truth that the whole world will someday see, but it is veiled from the eyes of the church. I've written a book, which is out of publishers right now, and you'll be perhaps the very first people I'll tell you when it comes out. It's called Converging Destinies, Jews, Christians, and the Mission of God. And it's a very serious book, a scholarly book. Uh, I've written two scholarly books. My my dissertation took me, between getting the master's and the Ph.D. and getting the dissertation approved, it was 15 years. And then this book took me about 10 years on and off. So that's 25 years of my life for two very serious books. I've written some other things, but these uh, are the kind of scholarly things that, that establish uh, will establish for anybody. We may not agree with Dowerman, but he's got a right to talk because he's done his homework. And I do my homework there. And you will see in that book, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, in chapter 4, I look at the World Council of Churches, the Protestant world, uh, the uh, what you would call the liberal Protestant world, largely. Then I look at the Lausanne Uh, committee, which is the evangelical Protestant world. And then I look at the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is the only body that really, really gets indebtedness to the Jews. You may not, you may, you're probably conditioned not to think that way. But the Roman Catholic Church has made greater strides since the 1960s than the Protestant churches have. And, um, you will see when you read that book and every one of you who buys the book will pers- get a personal autograph from me which, you know, is worth throwing dollars <laughs> uh, 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 Every one of you who reads that book will discover for yourselves how fortunate you are. Uh, but that pearl of great price that you have is also a seed. And... A seed is no good unless you water it and tend it and grow it. And I'm going to talk to you today about the work that I'm called to. But I want you to draw some lessons for yourselves. Because if you don't water the seed of of tremendous spiritual riches that you encounter in your community every week, if you don't water that, it's a tragedy, you know, because the, the seed might as well be barren. So let's talk for a while. My goal for this message is that you, the people of the Disciple Center, will be gripped with the plight of intermarriage in particular, Jewish, Christian intermarriage in particular. And as you'll see, the endeavor that I'm wrapping myself up in called the 'er Chavara Network. I'll explain that later. You'll see that as a well-suited remedy to this plight of intermarriage. That's my general goal. In order to achieve this goal, you need to uh, know three things. And we're going to look at those in a moment. First of all, you need to know that intermarried couples live in interfamilial tension, often accompanied by spiritual stagnation. Interfamilial, in other words, the families of origin of the husband and the wife, are almost, as a matter of fact, I will say always, sometimes the tension is politely ignored, but they live in interfamilial tension. And often, I would say, in my experience, always spiritual stagnation. Secondly, the opposition Jesus, whom we have inherited from Christendom, blocks progress in these areas, while the more Jewish Jesus opens up new possibilities. The opposition Jesus is something you've never articulated, but it's in the air of Christendom, trust me. Jesus, instead of the rabbis, the New Testament instead of the Old Testament, the church instead of the synagogue, us instead of them. That is the rhythm of Christendom as it thinks about the Jewish people since the time of Justin Martyr, second century. So, point number one, intermarried couples live in inter, an intra-familial tension and spiritual stagnation. Secondly, the opposition Jesus that we've inherited from Christendom blocks progress in these areas while the more Jewish Jesus creates new possibilities. And I'm going to explain to you what I mean by the more Jewish Jesus in a moment. I'm not talking about the Jewish Jesus. A lot of people know about the Jewish Jesus. That's the the Jesus of cliches. Raised in a kosher home, his mother called him Yeshua, he kept the Torah. That's fine. But I've got a more Jewish Jesus. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Number three, in order to achieve this, as I say, you need to know three things. The first is about this intracommunal and intrafamilial tension. Secondly, about how the opposition Jesus is a barrier, and how the more Jewish Jesus is a bridge. And lastly, that this Habaer havara network is ideally suited to addressing intra- and interfamilial tension, while also addressing spiritual needs. So, I hope that in this presentation you'll come away with two things emotionally. Number one, a sympathy for intermarriage. And number two, an excitement about the model I'm sharing. And I'll add a third, a commitment that you've got to do something about this kind of mechanism in your own world. I'll say more about that later. Why should you care? It's the next question I have written in my notes. Why, I mean, why should you care? You're not going to listen to me if you don't care. Why should you care? Well, first of all, the cause of the gospel among the Jews is stagnant in America. Stagnant. Uh, I've been fortunate to live in a historic time. When I came to faith in Jesus, I attended a church in the largest Jewish city outside of Israel, New York City. And they had a lot of Jews. There were three. There were three Jews in that church. And at that time, in the early 1960s, having three Jews in a church was a lot. Then came the Jesus Revolution. Came 1967, the Six-Day War, and uh, uh, leading up to 1973, the liberation of Jerusalem. And during that very same time in history, we have the Jesus Revolution, where Jesus Christ is on the front page of Time magazine. And during that time, uh, of the hippies, about about one-third of the hippies on the streets of San Francisco were Jews. And many of those hippies became believers in Jesus, and when they became believers in Jesus, they rediscovered that they were Jews. And so you had the birth of the Messianic Jewish movement, about which your pastor knows more than any Gentile on the face of the earth. So... uh but now, we're not living in that revival time anymore. 73, 83, 93, 2000, 40 years. 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. I told you, if I, and if I didn't, I should have, and if I did, you need to hear it again. I was at a meeting of the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations, a good group of people. A mid-year meeting, back in January or February it was, And there were 37 congregations represented. And I reminded them that of the 37 congregations represented, they had not seen 37 Jews come to faith in Jesus Christ in the last five years. I could have said ten years. And nobody would have questioned me. We are stagnant. And um, you know better than almost all Christians that the Jews are not just any old people. And when there is nothing happening about the gospel of Jesus Christ among the Jews, it's a serious business. Because as I'm going to show you in the five hours that I have for this sermon, (laughs) as I'm going to show you, at the end of human history, there's got to be a massive revival among the Jewish people. I'll show it to you in a little while. The Bible talks about two fullnesses. The fullness of the nations and the fullness of Israel. Two fullnesses. And it's after those two fullnesses are accomplished that we have the general resurrection, party time for the whole cosmos. But nobody gets to the party. The Jews don't get to the party without the Gentiles. And the Gentiles don't get to the party without the Jews. So you've got to care. And I really care because it's in my blood, it's in my tishkes, it's in my bones. So why should you care? because the cause of the gospel among the Jews is stagnant in America. Secondly, the cure commonly uh, uh, proposed deepens the problem. Here's the, in the church world generally, let's talk about these intermarried couples, getting back to my context. The reason I picked intermarriage is that 71% of non-Orthodox marriages now in America are Intermarriages. Seven out of ten Jews who marry are not marrying Jews. So, My reasoning is that amongst those people who are... are, Is it permitted to step out from behind the pulpit or does does thunder and lightning hit me? Uh, uh, It's my conviction, and it's my experience, that in many of those families, the wife who's usually the Gentile partner is a Christian of some sort. Uh, She may not be, but she she may be. And when she gets pregnant... All of a sudden, all these issues come up. I'll tell you, I know that, you know, I I appreciate you nodding your head. You're a therapist. You know your business. Believe me, I've seen it in 50 states that I traveled in. I know what I'm talking about. You'll find out why I know what I'm talking about in a minute. But my conviction is that out of that 7 out of 10 Jewish marriages that are intermarriages in many cases, the wife is the person who's most highly motivated to to achieve some kind of spiritual harmony in the family. And I've got the answer. I've got, the Bible has the answer. I've got the answer. And I believe that I have the responsibility and I want you to know about it. So that's what we're doing. So why should you care? Because the, the cause of the gospel among the Jews is stagnant. Secondly, the cure commonly proposed deepens the problem. The cure commonly proposed is pastors say, well, Susie, we've just got to get your husband saved. Now, I'm not opposed to a husband getting saved. But when this guy, if this guy becomes a typical Southern Baptist, pardon me, you know, uh, here's the problem. What about his family of origin? Do so we just say, "Well, they're all going to go to hell anyway"? So, pardon me, the hell with them. Uh, when he becomes a Christian and joins the Christian church, that may be good for his soul, but what about his family? Uh, it, it causes deeper problems in the intrafamilial structure. Do you see that? Uh, 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 so it, it it means that their marriage is carrying more weight. Because now his family is more alienated than they were before. Not only, did, not only did Michael marry Susie, this Gentile girl, but now he's become a Baptist. Now, that may not be a tragedy from your point of view, but it's a problem. And it's a problem that does not have to exist. Let me just say something else. I love talking to you. You're so well-educated, so bright, and you're so primed for this. Uh, This is not meant to be an insult. As I said here, I pick up, you know, I have a PhD in intercultural studies. Your, your, Your pastor is a PhD in anthropology. We're twins, kind of. And you're not aware of how much you exude a culture that's different from Jewish people's culture. You know, I'm picking up little things. It's, it's unavoidable. It's the water that you swim in. People say that a culture is like the water that, that fish swim in. Fish are unaware that they swim in water. And people are unaware that they swim in culture. But you swim in your own culture. Uh, although you're more familiar with Jewish culture than just about anybody and more reverent towards it. Still, you swim in your own culture. And there's an otherness There's an otherness between Christian, Gentile culture, and Jewish culture. And when we think that the solution to Susie's problem is that Michael should become a Christian and join the church, it solves one problem, and it creates a whole nest of others. It deepens them. So that's why you should care. Because the cure commonly proposed deepens the problem. It disrupts family and community structures. It reinforces the image of the opposition Jesus. I'll tell you about my family in a minute. I'm itching to tell you because my family is an illustration of this. Just a moment. A third reason you should care is not only because the, cause of the gospel is stagnant, not only because the, co- the solution commonly proposed deepens instead of solving the problem, but thirdly because God's declared will is for massive revival among the Jewish people. And this model that I'm talking about could be the means whereby this revival is facilitated. And that would be good. And I'm going to be talking to you about something called the Great Commission, which you know, and the Greater Commission, which you should know. So my message in one, in one paragraph is this. The Haba'er Chavara network is likely God's means towards spiritual renewal in the American Jewish community Through the gateway of intermarried households, whereby such households will grow in what I call the three-stranded cord. I want them to grow in Jewish life, I want them to grow in Yeshua faith, and I want them to grow in a relationship with God. Those three things. I, I think Jewish life is a holy way of life. You know that better than any Baptist on the face of the earth except the ones in Israel. So I want them to grow in Jewish life. I want them to continually grow in Yeshua faith and to grow in relationship with God. It occurred to me after I came up with that model that that's really the Father, Jewish life, the Son, Yeshua faith, and the Holy Spirit relationship with God. So mine is a Trinitarian model, and I believe in it to the core of my bones, and God preserve me from betraying it. The Habe Havera network is likely God's means towards spiritual renewal in the American Jewish community "...through the gateway of intermarried households, whereby such households will grow in Jewish life, Yeshua faith and relationship with God." Imagine that Michael, this theoretical guy I have, that, that he comes to Yeshua faith, but he comes to Yeshua faith in the context of, of a different context. All of a sudden his home becomes a lot more Jewish, and when he becomes more intentional about Jewish life. Then there's a different kind of discussion with his family than if he abandons Jewish life and assimilates to another culture, because there is something called that I'd call the chameleon principle. The chameleon principle is that we all have a tendency to blend in with contexts where to stand out would be socially, uh, socially damaging. Nobody wants to be the oddball in a given community. So if I joined First Baptist Church of XYZ City, the chances are, I don't want to be the house Jew forever and ever. I'm going to blend in. And that's, that's normal. But suppose that we have Michael and Susie blend in with something which is more Jewish than what they're used to. Then as they blend in, they, they don't create the problem. Now what about Susie's family? Susie's family can also understand that the Jesus that they serve and honor and worship is a more Jewish Jesus. We can do that from the Bible, and you'll see in a moment, that he himself is indeed our peace. So, now I get to tell you about my family. I'm going to tell you about uh, four families. My family. My father uh, was born in Austria-Hungary, in a town that, as far as I can gather, It's called Niemorov, and it's now about 80 kilometers southeast of Bialystok, Poland, just over the Ukrainian border. But before the First World War, it was Austria-Hungary. He came here in 1912 in third-class steerage with his mother and his sister, Razel. His father had come almost four years earlier. My grandfather, may he rest in peace, was a brilliant and very orthodox Jew. My father's family was not just nominally orthodox; they were serious. My grandfather, when he came to America, lived in Borough Park. He worked in the garment district, like everybody else, seemingly from that generation. But he was also an official. A, gab- a gabai is an officiant who takes care of making sure that everything goes right in a Hasidic synagogue. He, and he trained other men to become rabbis. He wasn't a rabbi, but he knew it all, and he trained them. My father was his only son. But my father was extremely bright, and even though he was eight years old when he came here in 1912, he knew he had two choices. He could either try and be an Eastern European transplant and please his father and mother, which would never happen, because his father was very difficult to please, and rather cold. So my father decided, I'm going to become an American. He took door number two. When he came over on the boat, he had payas, you know, and he told me, he said, a Polish soldier cut off his payas on the boat, and my father said he hid under the bed. He thought God was going to strike him dead. He had never never been without those his whole life. So my father, uh, when he was 16, he joined the labor force, Um, in New York, which would have been 1920. At that time, newspaper ads often said, Jews need not apply. Um, And he met a beautiful Sicilian-American girl named Maria Donato. Maria Donato was my mother, was to become my mother. They married. She converted to Judaism, orthodox conversion. I was born... Twelve years later, my sister was born seven years earlier than me, five years after they were married. On September 2nd, 1979, the day we buried my father after my parents had been married for 50 years, my mother said to me in the hearse, I never felt accepted by his family. She had sat on that, never dared tell me that until he was dead. And I inquired of my cousin, my father's sister, my father had one sister, and he had, and her oldest son is now the premier Jewish, the, the world's greatest expert on contemporary Jewish Bible scholarship, is my cousin, David. And I asked my cousin David, is it true that they never accepted my, my mother? And he said, oh yeah, we refer to her as Hermann's Narischkeit. foolishness. My mother was my father's foolishness. Now, you've got to realize, these are people who came from Europe, where, where uh, Jewish uh, life was drenched in blood, and where for generations after generations, Jews were treated like the ultimate outsider. And Jews returned the compliment to the Gentile world. And my mother was always an outsider, in my father's family. She may have been treated politely, but it's the politeness of a visitor rather than the politeness of a family member. So I didn't realize that all of this background ended up contributing to the fact that I've spent my life trying to interpret the Jewish world to the Christian world and the Christian world to the Jewish world. Well I realize in retrospect. Duh. (laughs) It's in your bones. Let me tell you another story. This one is uh, a lot newer. I knew a family once upon a time where uh, the husband, let's call him Jake and Jill, went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jill was from a uh, a fine um, evangelical family, never missed a Sunday in church her whole life. Jake was from a wealthy Jewish family. And uh, before they got married, Jake made some kind of profession of faith because she wouldn't marry him unless he did. But but his family, his wealthy Jewish family, uh, they preserved their sense of Jewish identity. For them, being a Jew means avoid all contamination from things Christian. You know, the way you preserve your Jewish identity is you must... Keep yourself from being in, uh, in any, in, infected by that which is supremely other. Now, Jake is a guy who, because his parents were very, very wealthy, he, and also because of his family dynamics, he never wanted to displease his parents. So even though Jake and Cindy were married, for, uh, Jake and Jill were married for about 17 years, there was never any real intimacy. She didn't go to church for 17 years. And he did not really warm up to Jesus because that would really upset his family. So that's a, that's a, a disaster. You know? And it's not unusual. And uh, uh, Jake and Jill are right now on their way to divorce court uh, for other reasons also connected with us. But the point is, um, you see, the problems are deeper than simply theological. It's because of the the tradition of each community treating the other as other, as by definition, other. And it creates all kind of problems. Let me give you one, uh, let's see. Here's Here's a happier one. Last week, I wasn't here. No, two weeks ago, I wasn't here. I was in Seattle. And when I was in Seattle, I taught two workshops, did a concert, and preached a sermon. Uh, I should have gotten paid (laughs) $7,462. But I didn't. I'll send them a note. And while I was there, I met a woman. Uh, I'm going to call her Kathy Levy. That's not her name. Kathy Levy is a Gentile woman in her 50s, married to a Jewish guy from Chicago, We'll call him Larry Levy, also not his name. This week I got a phone call from uh, Kathy, and it was recorded, and so I can give you a, a transcription of it. Shalom, this is Kathy. My phone number is 12345678910, which it's not. Dr. Darman, I would like a chance to talk with you. I had such a great time talking with you in Seattle. And my husband and I are very interested in working with you to come together in greater ways with him being Jewish and me being Christian and bridging the gap. Our whole goal over the years is wanting to help bridge that gap for not only ourselves, but others. And we would love to be able to talk with you more and find out how we can go about this process. So she said, it's it's uh, Kathy Levy and... Uh, Larry Levy and here's our phone number, Shalom now, Larry has come to faith in Jesus he's already a believer in Jesus, but still they they sense a certain kind of disconnect that 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 they need help with now it's not simply marriage therapist work it's all, I'm a religious therapist you know I'm a spiritual therapist and I I don't pretend to be a a marriage and family therapist, but I do pretend to be a spiritual therapist in terms of the fact of helping people deal with the theological freight that changes the nature of the problem. I'm going to talk to you about that in just a moment. Let's tell you about a fourth fourth couple, and that is um, uh, Linda Levy. Linda Levy is a woman, a beautiful woman, who is, um, uh, grew up in, a, in an unchurched home, but eventually found her way to a Southern Baptist church and found the gospel. And uh, she's a, a Gentile. And her name really is Levy. Linda Levy is a, 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 a high-end uh, hairstylist, very high-end and very capable woman, and she's married to a Jewish guy. They live in California, Northern California. And uh, and she says she's been waiting for 30 years for somebody who understands all these issues. Now, he's also a believer in Jesus. But the problems don't necessarily disappear when he becomes a believer because we've got all of this baggage of thousands of years, and the baggage, even if you don't know it's there, it's there. So she and I, she's going to be working as a partner with me in this. And she she started she started to cry when I started talking about my 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 plans. She said, "I've been waiting thirty years for somebody to do that." And she's going to be my partner. So let's let's go on. So I'm going to talk about the opposition Jesus, the Jewish Jesus, the more Jewish Jesus. Let's look at the scripture. Look at Matthew 23 verse two verse 2 and 3 Matthew 23 I I want you to see something about the more Jewish Jesus that most people never see now this chapter is a chapter which has excoriating criticism of the Sadducees and the Pharisees it's brutal but in the midst of this, there are certain things that are affirmed, that derive, gr- that have greater weight, because even in the midst of criticism, Jesus grants certain things that need to be remembered. Let's begin at the beginning of the chapter, chapter twenty-three, of Matthew. I'm reading from the Holy New American Standard Translation, of which there is no other translation holier. At least that's what I'm told around here. Okay, so here we go. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Well, I'm not crazy about that translation. They sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. Stop. Stop. The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat; therefore, do whatever they tell you to do. Uh, as far as we know, this chair of Moses was a place where teachers in the synagogue would sit and, and speak authoritatively. We've inherited this in Western civilization. Although most of you are u- university educated, and you'll you'll go to a university and somebody speaks, somebody from the chair of Jewish studies or the chair of uh, the, the chair of behavioral studies, uh, or, or we, we always speak of chairman. Where did that come from? It comes from the ancient world that teachers who spoke authoritatively in an area would have a seat from which they taught. So that's where we get the idea of chair of this, chair of that, chair of the other thing. Yeshua says the scribes and the Pharisees are the chairmen of Judaism. They're the chair. Therefore, you do whatever they tell you to do. In other words, if you want to know what Judaism requires of you, you don't go to Kenneth Copeland. You go to the scribes and the Pharisees because they have the authority. Oh, I'll give you to you a little more. The Pope. Are you familiar with the term ex cathedra? When the Pope speaks ex cathedra, he speaks <coughs> from the chair of St. Peter and that those statements have greater authority in the Catholic Church because he speaks ex cathedra from the chair. This metaphor, which has come down from the ancient world, is what Jesus is referring to here. And he says, the scribes and the Pharisees have the right to interpret what Judaism demands. They have the right to interpret what Torah demands of you. Now, you're not going to hear that at First Baptist Church. You are going to hear it in the Disciple Center. You're going to hear it from me. It's right there in the page. So first, Jesus upholds Jewish community structures. This is the more Jewish Jesus. He is not out to destroy the Jewish community and dismantle it. He upholds Jewish community structures. Go to verse 23. We'll see two more points. Here's a text that's half read, almost always. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Hypocrites! For you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, three spices, and you neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now that's where people usually stop. Um, Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Let's let's look at this. I'll, I'll finish the verse. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Let me interpret this for you. He says, you tithe mint, dill, and This is a Jewish custom. It's not even in the Torah. You're punctilious about this tithing of little spices. And you neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness. We just sang a song. He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But do to justly to love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jesus upholds Jewish values. Not only Jewish community structures. He upholds Jewish values. He says, you're neglecting the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And then he says, these you should have done, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, without neglecting the others. He upholds Jewish custom. Now this is, what I'm teaching you right now is revolutionary in the thinking of much of Christendom. Because the assumption is, is that Jesus came to supersede all of this Jewish stuff. But it's not much he got here in Matthew 23. He says, Jewish values, justice, mercy, faithfulness. And he says, Jewish custom, uh, tithing and minting and coming. He says, don't neglect your customs. But don't lose your perspective either. So, the more Jewish Jesus is a Jesus who upholds Jewish community structures, he upholds Jewish values, and he upholds Jewish customs. And when you begin to get deeply who the more Jewish Jesus is, the whole dialogue changes. You understand? That's, now, that's what I stand for, and I'm in a big minority, because most people have never thought about this. But it's important. We have three points... Of discovery that I want you to look at. Number one, the opposition Jesus versus the more Jewish Jesus. In Mike and uh, Susie's home, if if I can begin to explicate and show them and give them books and things like, there are a lot of books written about this, where they be, where Mike begins to realize there's a more Jewish Jesus, then maybe Mike can take a step towards this Jesus without betraying his Jewishness. And there's a more Jewish Jesus. Maybe Susie can take a step towards Judaism without betraying her Christian background. All of a sudden, there's a territory where they can meet. I call that the intersection. There's an intersection where they can meet. I'm so excited about this. It's very important. So that's the first point of discussion. The second point of discussion takes us to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. very familiar passage but there's one little detail (coughs) that bears pointing out here Paul is addressing the fact that the Gentile world which in his day Gentile and pagan was the same concept there was no such thing as a Gentile Christian until until Paul's ministry came along so Gentiles were categorically as far as Jews are concerned idol-worshipping, blood-drinking, fornicating pagans. And then there were the Jews, who were the people of God. These are two communities that had always defined themselves in contradistinction to each other. How do you know you're a Jew? Well, I'm not a a pagan. How do you know you're a pagan? Well, I'm not a Jew. Here we go. Paul says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is the form of the flesh by human hands, asked Pastor Stokes to talk to you about marked terms. Marked terms. Uh, there's the, the, the standard term in Jewish thought is the circumcised. So the Gentiles are the uns. The Gentiles are always un. They were the marked category. So he says, therefore, remember that formerly you Gentiles in the flesh who are formerly called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which was formed in the flesh by human hands, remember that at you time, at that time, you were the, you were the ultimate outsiders. You uh, uh, remember that you were, were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You were the ultimate nobodies. Remember. Then he says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The outsiders have become insiders through the blood of Christ. Verse 14, For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, the the, the barrier of hostility. The barrier of hostility was, was he broke down this categorical exclusion. The categorical exclusion no longer applies because God has made Gentiles to be the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So the barrier of hostility whereby the, two, whereby the Jewish community protected itself from the otherness of the Gentile world categorically it no longer applies because Gentiles are not categorically other anymore. Understand. Now let's fast forward two thousand years. Who are the categorical others to Jews, Christians, in Jake and Jill's family, in my father's family a generation ago, in many families, uh, the Jews and Christians have this uh, this um, this categorical counter-distinction. But the point I want you to look at in verse 14 is this. He himself is our peace. Here he's not talking about peace with God. He's talking about peace between the Gentile world and the Jewish world. And for these intermarriages, he's talking about peace between Susie's family and Michael's family. He's talking about peace between Jake and Jill's family. He's talking about peace between Herman, my father, and Mary's family. He is our peace. But in order for him to be perceived that way, we need a more Jewish Jesus. We can't make peace between these families through the opposition Jesus. It only, that, o- that only preserves the barrier of hostility, which Paul says the gospel has broken down. Okay. I want, you, I want to look with you at uh, two more passages of scripture. Romans 11, please. And this, <coughs> I probably taught, taught on this some time here, but uh, Paul is wondering in chapter 9, 10, 11, after he has his great peon of praise at the end of chapter 8 about the, uh, nothing can separate from the love of God, neither life nor death nor angels nor things visible or invisible, angels or principalities, nothing can separate some love of Christ, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, then he immediately thinks, well, what about the Jews? What about my people? Because in his day, the Jews generally were saying meh, were saying no thank you about the gospel, generally. And the Gentile world was more flocking to it. And Paul was wondering, is this all there is? Is this the best that God can do? He sends the Messiah into the world in the fulfillment of promise and the Jews say, no, thank you. Is that the end of the story? And he realizes it's not the end of the story. He realizes that God worked among the Jews, but not for their sake, also for the sake of the Gentiles. Get out of your country, leave your father's house, go to land I will show you, I'll make of you a great nation, and in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And then, In Christ, God is working among the Gentiles, but not for their own sake only, but also for the Jews. Paul says, I magnify my ministry in order to make Israel jealous and thus save some of them. So even what's happening among the Gentiles is supposed to be of benefit to the Jews, but God is focusing on the Gentiles. But Paul realizes in chapter 11 that something that never occurred, the idea that the Messiah would come to the Jews and then go to the Gentiles was not a new idea. It's all over the prophets. But the idea that a Messiah would come to the Jews, go, that the message would go to the Gentiles, and the Jews would say, no thank you. And then God was going to come back to the Jews at the end of time and do another work among the Jews. That was a new thought. And Paul talks about that in Romans 11. He says this, verse 11. I say then, did the Jewish people stumble so as to fall? Did they? Oh, no, let's put it in your translation. I say that they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Okay, so the Jewish people did not stumble so as to remain prostrate and out of the money. They stumbled for a purpose, for salvation had come to the Gentiles. Then he goes on. Verse 12, now... If their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, that's the Great Commission. Riches for the world, riches for the Gentiles. All the nations receiving the gospel. That's the Great Commission. If their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness be? Look in the margin. Their fullness, pleroma. So, he's talking about a fullness. For if there be, verse 14, if, uh, verse uh, verse 15. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, that is, the Great Commission, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Paul is talking here about two fullnesses. If you look in verse 23, let's see. Uh, Verse 25, I do not want you brethren to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial happening, hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So in this chapter he talks about two fullnesses, the fullness of Israel and the fullness of the Gentiles. Through Israel's stumbling, God began his work among the Gentiles. But at the end of history, there's going to be another fullness, the fullness of Israel. Now, it's interesting that the Great Commission does not swallow up the Jews in this construct. This, they're distinct fullness. They're not separate, but they're distinct. And they're coordinate in Jesus Christ, but they're distinct fullnesses. Would you like to know what the fullness of Israel looks like? Let me, let me show you. Turn to Ezekiel 37, verse 21 to 28. I won't teach the whole thing because we don't have time. But I'll give you there are seven seven aspects of the fullness of Israel. What is it going to look like when God is accomplishing his final game plan for the Jewish people? What is the fullness of Israel going to look like? This is very important. Uh, Chapter 37, verse 21. Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them to their own land. Point number one, the fullness of Israel involves the regathering of the Jewish people to the land. Number two, I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. One king shall be king over all of them. They shall no longer be divided into two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. First thing is a regathering. Secondly is a unification of the Jewish people. Thirdly, the spiritual repentance and renewal of the Jewish people. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols, with the detestable things, or with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. They will be my people, I will be their God. So the first three things regathering and unity and spiritual renewal. Now look at verse twenty four. Very important. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. God will bring the Jewish people to the Messiah, to allegiance to the Messiah at the end of time. That's where where that is. And the second half of verse 24, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will become Torah obedient. Now, I'm not going to go to the rest of the seven because I don't have time. I want to look at verse 24. I believe in both halves of verse 24. I believe that at the end of time, God is going to bring the Jewish people back, Jewish people to allegiance to the Messiah. Therefore, I believe in Jewish evangelism, bringing Jews to allegiance to the Messiah. But the same verse says, he's going to cause them to walk in the statutes and ordinances. In the previous, so it's through the Messiah that God brings the Jewish people back to Torah. I want you to know there are people who don't want to talk to me because I say that. Because it goes against their dispensational um, preferences, and because it, it also stands in judgment over their own assimilation. But there it is. I believe in both hands of verse 24. Some people believe in one half, but not the other. So, if I had the five hours I deserve, I'd go further into it, but let's not do it. So, we've looked at the opposition Jesus, the more Jewish Jesus, Matthew 23, We've looked at the the end of this us then polarization, this partnership and obedience, Ephesians 2. We've looked at the great commission, uh, uh, the greater commission, that somebody has got to champion this work among the Jews. And by the way, one of the things I appreciate about you guys is uh, what you say about commandments in in your service. Commandment is not a dirty word to you. That's very unusual. Uh, it's, it's not a dirty word. Okay. So I have for you some statistics on intermarriage. I'll, I, have, I have on sheets. I won't hand it out. If you want to have statistics on intermarriage, I have that for you. I want to tell you a few things. What am I, I going to do? I want to organize a network of house fellowships. Um, Uh, Khabarot. The term is Khabarot. Especially amongst intermarriage. And through those house fellowships, I want to uh, disciple Jewish people in the three-stranded cord of Yeshua faith, Jewish life, and relationship with God. I want these house churches to multiply. That's what I want to do. It's not a gimmick either. It's something that goes back to the first century. The first century, that's where things happened. Now, I think of two kinds of meetings. Uh, uh, The Bible says in uh, Acts 5.42, they continue daily in the temple and from house to house. The temple is what I call a 4C meeting. And communities need 4C meetings. 4C meetings. The 4Cs are you need a meeting for celebration. You need a meeting for connection with a wider community and a tradition. You need a meeting... uh, celebration, connection you need a meeting that's going to catalyze you a booster shot for your commitments and number four you need a meeting for the children where the children can see that there are other families and other people who are as wacky as their mommy and daddy are so four C's celebration, connection catalyzing and children I believe in both I'm hoping that uh, you know Here's what I envision. I already have a curriculum I've worked out for these, these uh, or, or at least I've outlined, for these house fellowships of intermarriage and sometimes of Jews. I don't really care where they go to church or go to synagogue. Suppose Michael and Susan, suppose they, suppose they go to a reformed synagogue because his family insists on it. I can still get to them for the other 166 hours of the week. Because as I told you last week, spiritual identity is shaped through the patterns of daily practice and weekly practice. Uh, It's not shaped by that two-hour celebration meeting. But I will also want to have periodic celebration meetings that are part of the Chavara network. Maybe in the beginning, every quarter, every two months, eventually every month, a four seas meeting. And if I did some stuff like this in Orange County, I would hope that maybe I could use this space for a four seas meeting a place where uh, we cel- have celebration, using that great piano, celebration, connection, uh, look at this, you know, oh my God, celebration, connection, catalysis, and the children. So, another thing I want to do, I've talked to your, your pastor about this, I want to have uh, some conferences or workshops called Touching the Invisible Man. The Invisible Man is primarily the Jewish man married into a Christian family. A lot of churches have invisible men. They never see them. They drop their wives off and their children off for Sunday school. Uh, Or they're married to the daughters of people sitting in the pews. I guarantee you, any church of any size, you've got invisible men. I want to touch the invisible man. I'd like to have workshops where Pastor Stokes would, uh, would speak on how the Jews are invisible to the church, for example. And then Linda Levy, who I mentioned to you, would speak as being the wife, what it's like to be the wife of the invisible man. And then I would speak on the whys and hows of of touching the invisible man and his family. (coughs) And then I would talk also about the ultimate invisible Jewish man. Who is the ultimate invisible Jewish man the more Jewish Jesus, he's invisible to the Jewish world and to the Christian world. So I'd like to have these workshops, and through these workshops, I guarantee I know exactly what's going to happen. After afterwards, all these women who are, uh, uh, who like Linda, I call them Tiffany, Tiffany, or oh, we'll call them. I used the name, what I Michael and what's the other name I used for Susie. All the Susies will come up to Linda, crying because somebody understands can you help us, can you help us, can you help us I want to help them, that's what I want to do so I want to finish by reading you something and then I'm done by the way, I've taken, I've had mercy on you I have a whole flock of other pages but I, I, you know, I I don't trust you not to be homicidal so I want to read to you I won't even read it to you. This is about the Bronx household of faith. Before I left New York and New York City, God has really prepared me for this. Before I left New York and New York City, before I left New York to come to California in 1973, I was for a few years involved in the Bronx household of faith. The Bronx household of faith was founded by two couples, Jack and Pat Roberts and Bob and Jeannie Hall. Jack Roberts was from a fundamentalist family in Oklahoma. And Pat was a, a, a Roman Catholic girl from the Bronx whose parents were both dead of cancer by the time she was 18. And she raised, she wants to become a nun, but instead she raised her brother and her sister. Eventually, she became a, 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 a probation officer in the South Bronx. Very, very tough job. And Jack also was working as a probation officer. They met, they fell in love. They, and then Bob and Jeannie Hall were Midwestern Christians. He was a graduate of Covenant Seminary. And they, they, they founded a house church in the Bronx called the Household of Faith. It's been there for 40 years. And they've had an extraordinary effect on their community. Now, Jack, now Sue, um, Jack and Pat, they had a few children. They had 12 children. Six of them were their own and six of them were adopted. Chinese children, etc., etc. Pat homeschooled all of them. Last I heard, all of the children were walking with the Lord except one. Now, my point to you is that here is a family, Christian family, who gave their lives and opened up their homes for the service of the gospel and were able to carry on with family life at the same time, extraordinary family life. Now, Bob and Jeannie, they were kind of sterile. They only had six children. So, Bob and, so between them, they had 18 children. They raised them in a slum, in a Hispanic slum. They moved into a slum, and they stayed there. And they've had a tremendous effect. So I know that a house church is not a gimmick. Uh, I don't want you to think of it as a gimmick, as though the real stuff gets done uh, under a spire. And house churches are only a gimmick. They're not a gimmick. They are action central for the kingdom of God. For Susie and, uh, I call them Michael and Susie, Michael and Susie's family, what happens in their home is going to affect their families. Uh, What's happening with their children, what's happening with them in Jewish life, what's happening with them in Jesus, etc., is going to affect their families. Um, And I'll, I'll finish up with one question when you're inviting people to engage with your faith, which invitation are they more likely to say yes to? You ought to come visit my church sometime. Or, why don't you come over and share a meal with us sometime? Which invitation is more likely to get a yes? Over that table, in the home, you know, I probably told you last week that when people sit down and eat together, it's magical. The whole way they relate to each other changes. And that's the way the church was. Breaking bread from house to house. They would remember the Lord in bread at the beginning of the meal. They remember him, they remember him in bread and wine. But they, they had meals together from house to house. And that was the magic of the first century, at least structurally. And I want to see that magic again in the Haba'er, Havara network. Let me tell you why it's Haba'er. Haba'er means the Well, wells were in, in the Old Testament, in the Bible what happened at wells? let's have examples what's that? People, they talk. people talk at a well what else happens? very good, thank you by the way, I got that book for you that I talked to you about last week I bought another copy just for you and I left it home <laughs> <laughs> but I haven't forgotten you so wells, people talk also people have life changing encounters the woman at the well with jesus they have life changing encounters people settle disagreements at a well you see uh, abraham's uh, servants etc they get into arguments at a well people solve uh, situations at a well people meet their spouses at a well they're life changing encounters but there's another reason why we call it habaer the well because baer is in hebrew which means the well uh, is an acronym for bait spiritual treasure house a scribe of the kingdom is like a householder who brings out of his treasures things old and things new that's what our households will be treasure houses where we look at things old and things new that's all I have to say I wish I said it better but I want to hear your questions thank you very much